0: This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the roaring 20s. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now, she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on Chapter 6, and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android.
1: Who's that? Do you see who's calling me? Nielsen? Who's Nielsen? Can we we talk about how I've been getting stalked real quick by the Nielsen, the people that do the TV or like (gasps) radio ratings? Do they want you to rate them? Yeah, I've been doing it. I finally got selected. What? But They're asking me to listen to the AM radio. I always wondered who these Nielsen people were. It's me! Whoa!
0: Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories— and I'm Mogab, the true
1: crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. All right, Mogab,
0: I've got a rough one for you today. Ooh, today I'm going to tell you about the murders of four teenage girls inside a <gasps> yogurt shop in Austin, Texas.
1: Oh, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> I am because I did all the research for it. And if I had to go through it, you you do too now. <laughs> That's what this has become, like, like a support, <laughs> like a support your personal group. support group. Yes,
0: exactly. The information for this episode comes mostly from the book Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Lowry, as well as an article from the Austin Chronicle. And I will list full
1: sources in the show notes. Before I get on board for this wild ride, are we mm-hmm. actually going to find out at the end of this who killed these girls or not? Nah? No. God. It is currently unsolved. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, peeps and creeps, you can stop right now. <laughs> but I've got I've got theories that I'll give you at the end. I can't wait for mine to form.
0: <laughs> yes. This episode is sponsored by Prose. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, PROSE proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. PROSE is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas, pros.com slash creepers. On December 6th, 1991, 15-year-old Sarah Harbison was in a really good mood because her boyfriend of only three weeks had given her his senior ring which totally Ah. takes me back to high school. I know. Oh my God. Yes. It was a Friday night and she told her mother that she wanted to go out. And because she's 15 and it's 1991, going out
1: meant going to the mall. To the movies. Oh, close. Okay. (laughs) To the mall. Do you remember just like mall crawling? (laughs) Yeah. Like you would just like go and you didn't have any money. We didn't didn't have have any money. Yeah, God. And I would just, that food court, like, Mm. I was Mm -hmm. living.
0: Yes. (laughs) So she didn't want to go by herself, of course. So she invited her best friend, 13 year old Amy Ayers, who was still in middle school. So they rarely got to see each other. Yeah. Oh, heartbreak. I know. Her mother agreed and said that Sarah's 17 year old sister, Jennifer, could pick up Amy and drop the girls off at the mall on the way to her shift at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop in Austin. (laughs) <laughs> really that's that's the name icby <laughs> i can't be- i kept wanting to say i can't believe it's not
1: yogurt but i'm like no it is yo- it's a yogurt shop <laughs> yogurt i can't believe it's not ice cream not i not to get confused it's with it's t-c- tcby which was <clears> my jam correct what did tcby the country's best yogurt <laughs> wait right. is that really what it stood for i think so tcby i didn't know it stood for anything but they had white chocolate mousse coming out of that soft serve machine and mm. i was like Fancy.
0: I just would like get the little pink spoon and want to sample every single flavor.
1: <laughs> oh no, not Baskin my mom... Robbins. Baskin Robbins Wait. was the 20, was the <laughs> 31 Baskin flavors. Robbins. Do you really think Louise was going to let me just take my sweet ass time testing? All... We, we went to TCY cause I had a drive through and she was not playing games. <sighs>
0: uh, Sarah and Amy were so excited because this was the very first time that they were allowed to go to the mall by themselves. God, I love everything about this. Well, (laughs) so far. So far. Jennifer had worked at ICBY since July when her friend Eliza Thomas, who was also 17, told her how much she liked working there. Jennifer had become close to Eliza through their high school's chapter of the agricultural program, the Future Farmers of America, or FFA. Did you have FFA at your school?
1: I did, but I will not be giving any of my FFA takes since the hunting population <laughs> that apparently listens to us already came for me in a previous episode. But yes.
0: Yeah, we had FFA at our school too. It was huge. We went to school in Texas as well. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, fair enough. All four girls were really, really involved with the FFA and they were even raising some lambs and a pig. Eliza and Jennifer had even recently been nominated for FFA queen. Eliza had the closing shift that night as well, and it would just be the two of them working, Jennifer and Eliza.
1: Just two 17-year-olds?
0: Yeah, just two 17-year-olds.
1: As the girls
0: each left their respective houses and said goodbye to their parents, no one had any way of knowing that that was the last time they would see those girls again.
1: Oh, I haven't even seen them, and I'm already sad. I know. Ugh, okay. Okay.
0: Close to midnight that night, Sergeant John Jones would arrive at the yogurt shop responding to a call after a patrolling officer spotted smoke and then flames coming from the shop. Jones was the only homicide detective on the street that night, and by total coincidence, he had a news crew with him doing a ride-along. What? Yeah, it had had been a really slow day that day, and the reporter had been complaining that nothing ever happens in Austin, which had a pretty low crime rate, and Jones, (laughs) Jones was saying oh, you'll get a much better story when you go to Houston because they were headed to Houston the next day.
1: Much higher crime rate here. In 1999, though, I mean, I feel like now, Austin, you could. 1991. Oh, 91, yeah.
0: Yeah. The dispatcher on the call told him there were two fatalities, suspected arson, suspected homicide, and it looked like gunshot wounds. Soon, another call came in. They'd found another body. What Sergeant Jones saw when he walked into the yogurt shop, he could only describe as wholesale carnage. (gasps) He said that in his 21 years as a police officer, he'd never seen anything like it.
1: At the yogurt shop?
0: At the yogurt shop. All four girls, Sarah, Jessica, Eliza, and Amy, were found dead inside the back room of the shop shot execution style in the back of the head with a twenty-two caliber gun. All but Amy were gagged. Sarah and Eliza had their hands bound behind their back. They were all naked and they were all burned to the bone. Oh my God. Please stop. I know. 15-year-old Sarah was found on her back, her hands bound behind her back, her legs spread and an ice cream scoop on the floor between her thighs. <sighs> 17-year-old Eliza was spread-eagled, stacked sideways on top of Sarah, with her hands also bound behind her back. 17-year-old Jennifer lay less than three feet away from her, burned the worst of them all, and 13-year-old Amy Ayers was found face down, separated from the others in another area of the back room, as if she'd tried to crawl away.
1: Oh my God. I
0: think I'm crying. (laughs) It's my first podcast cry. I know. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not. Oh, (laughs) have cried before. (laughs) Okay. Rude. You cried at Lulu. Oh, Lulu. (laughs) And now yo-yo. When Sergeant Jones walked into the ICBY shop that night, he could barely take in the scene before him. The yogurt shop was a very small shop. So when you walk through the front doors, there are rows of small booths lining the wall on both sides. And then there's three small tables lined up in a row through the middle of the shop. Lining the back wall was the counter and the cash register. And against the back wall directly across from the front door was the door to the back room. And that's where the girls were found. Back there was access to the walk-in freezer, an office that was found locked. Two bathrooms, a male and female bathroom, and a door that led to the alley out back. Sergeant Jones entered the shop through that back door, and firefighters had actually discovered that the door had been cracked open when they arrived, and they saw puddles of water all over the place from the firemen who had put out the fire before realizing that it was the scene of a murder. They Uh, said that if they had known it was a murder, they might have done things a little differently, taken a little bit more care to maintain the evidence. But because of the intense fire and the amount of water used to extinguish it, some of the evidence that could have pointed to the killer or killers was destroyed. And Sergeant Jones knew that that was going to put him at a serious disadvantage.
1: Okay, but then, I mean, I know he's not saying it's their fault, but then like also then they don't fight the fire and then everything burns up anyways.
0: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what the protocol is for putting a fire out when it is this, a the crime this scene. Is a crime scene, but it seemed to me like if they had known that it was a murder, they would have done things a little differently. but. Sure. I really do believe that at this initial stage of the investigation, for it being 1991, everybody was really doing the best they could with what they had, including the firefighters. For sure. Sergeant Jones saw bodies charred and still smoldering, bodies so blackened, almost melted, that they were hardly indistinguishable from the rest of the scene. They were hardly distinguishable as bodies. Insulation had fallen from the ceiling and dropped down. Cans had exploded. Syrup spilled. The metal shelves by the girls had softened so much from the heat that they were swooping down. And the biggest question running through his head was
1: how on earth
0: had this happened?
1: Yeah. That's also in my mind with a litany of other questions. So if you could please continue.
0: (laughs) Crime scene reconstruction would tell us a lot about what happened, but very little about who it was. The crime scene analyst would testify that there was evidence that shows the girls were forced to undress themselves. Their clothes weren't, weren't torn and, in fact, were folded and neatly stacked. Sarah had even taken off her boyfriend's ring and hidden it inside the layers of her clothes. Mm. Their clothes did have cuts on them, and the crime scene analyst said the killers used that as a kind of aggressive penetration, another measure of terror and control. All of their clothes were found close to the back doors, so he says it's clear that the
1: killers brought the girls under control in that part of the back room. Meaning the girls were in that back room, that's where they undressed and did everything before they... Came. Yes. Sarah's so icky about all of this.
0: Yeah. Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza were gagged with items of their own clothing. The gags nodded at the backs of their heads. Sarah and Eliza were bound with their hands behind their backs and then raped. Eliza first and then Sarah. Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza were lying face down when they were shot. The killers then repositioned Sarah to lie on her back and moved Eliza to lie across Sarah. The crime scene analysts believed Amy was the last one killed. She had also been sexually assaulted as well as strangled by a sock-like cloth material that was found wrapped around her neck. She was shot with a 22 like the others, but it didn't kill her. So oh. they shot her again with a 38 to the side of her head. And that was the fatal shot. We can't know for sure what happened exactly, and there are several contradictory reports, but the theory was that after the girls had been killed, the murderers stacked the four bodies one on top of the other, doused them with lighter fluid, set them on fire, and left. Amy was found separated from the others as if she had managed to crawl off the pile of bodies and crawl away before she died. And then the fire or possibly the actions of the firefighters somehow caused Jennifer to fall off the pile a few feet away where she was found when police arrived. Yeah, those water hoses are like
1: the pressure, you know. Right. They don't know there's stuff in there. Was the yogurt shop in like a strip of other things or was it standalone? It was a, yeah,
0: it was a strip center and it wasn't, it was like the second shop to the end. There was like one store on the right of it and then the yogurt shop, and then there was like a long rest of the other stores along the rest of the way. However, Amy was found shot with a 22, but it hadn't been the fatal shot, like I said. She'd been found shot in the side of the head with a 380, which then went through her. So her dragging herself off the bodies after the men had left doesn't seem probable to me. Maybe they had stayed and waited around a little bit and then shot her as she's crawling away. But Mm -hmm. the crime scene analyst said the most likely scenario to explain her body's position was that someone had grabbed her right arm and dragged her away from the other Mm -hmm. girls. And I'll post pictures of the actual, like, layout of the crime scene, where the bodies were found, and how they were positioned, and all of that. Police were able to know a few things for sure. They knew that Eliza and Jennifer were closing that night on their own and that for the duration of a shift at ICBY, they were pretty much on their own. There was an, this was like a neighborhood gathering place where the typical customers were families, young couples, sometimes even the governor would stop by for some frozen yogurt. Jennifer arrived at work at eight that night to help Eliza close down the store after the morning employee left. Around nine, she drove to North Cross Mall to pick up Sarah and Amy, and they stopped and picked up Mr. Getty's pizza, and then they all went back to the shop. Sarah a pizza and-
1: party at the shop?
0: Exactly. Sarah and Amy okay. sat in a booth with their pizza while Jennifer and Eliza kind of closed down the store. Customers remembered seeing two girls sitting in a booth sharing a pizza earlier in the night, but customers closer to closing time didn't see them. The pizza box was actually found in the back room, so it seems like Sarah and Amy had taken the pizza to the back room when they really started to close down the
1: store. The Scott Peterson pizza party and this pizza party are really like... (laughs) Throwing you off. Yeah, like I'm just not just not down with it anymore i know both
0: pizza parties apparently end in murder (laughs) so that's um terrifying when jennifer got back with sarah and amy and i found this detail really just terrible eliza was on the phone trying to get her little sister to ride her bike to the shop but her parents wouldn't let her go like thank god (laughs) oh yeah Throughout the night, several of the girls' parents would actually pop into the shop to get yogurt, just check in. And this is the saddest thing in the world to me because it just seems so safe and so innocent. Like your high school daughter works at a yogurt shop and you can just pop in, get some yogurt, check on her, and everything is fine. Like everything should have been fine.
1: That's not even like a dangerous first job. Like it's not, right. you know, a Waffle House. No. No. Right.
0: There were several customers that came into the shop close to closing and noticed some suspicious people in the shop. One woman said she saw these two guys that looked like they were maybe teenagers, around 14 to 17. They were the only other people in the restaurant when she walked in around 830, and she said they made her feel uncomfortable. But I wonder if they only made her feel uncomfortable as she's remembering this
1: after Mm -hmm. what happened, you know? Or is like any annoying 14 or like 17, you know, like junior high and high school boys like just irritate you or, you know, like, yeah, I'm usually uncomfortable by junior high or high school kids boys (laughs) specifically. Fair enough. Yes, fair (laughs) enough. They were sitting at the table nearest
0: the door and they didn't appear to be eating any frozen yogurt or anything. They just seemed to be really focused on a sack that they had on a table in between them. The woman said it made a clinking sound when one of the boys stuck his hand in it, kind of like marbles hitting each other or maybe coins or keys. Are they pogs? (laughs) I don't, would pogs make a clinking sound? Weren't those more like wooden? I don't know. I'm just thinking
1: 1991. Like cardboard? (laughs) (laughs)
0: a couple that went in about a quarter to 11 said they saw two suspicious men that could have been teenagers sitting at the booth closest to the cash register they also weren't eating anything just sitting there and the only other people in the shop at that time in hindsight the couple felt like maybe these men were waiting for the shop to clear out so they could make their move At this point, the girls had started stacking chairs, cleaning machines, all the usual end of shift stuff, and police would actually find all the chairs stacked on top of tables except for the table closest to the cash register. This is the one table that did not have chairs on it. And when police would arrive on the crime scene, they would find that Eliza and Jennifer had nearly finished cleaning the shop. The chairs were stacked on all the tables. The napkin dispensers had all been filled except for that booth, the one closest to the cash register. It was the only table in the shop that did not have a chair on top, the only table whose napkin dispenser was empty, as if someone had been sitting in that booth while the girls were cleaning and they never got a chance to finish cleaning it.
1: Okay, but like that means the person is just sitting there like... At the crime scene for an extended period of time where people could have walked in and like, well, I guess if you're just, I mean, I just went to the store and I can't tell you who I interacted with, you know, I guess.
0: And there were several customers that came in and saw these people. Normal protocol would be that around 10 minutes before 11, they'd lock the front door from the inside. They'd turn the open sign to closed and they'd leave the key in the lock, even if last minute customers were still in the shop. Like I've been at retail stores where Mm -hmm. I'm locked inside, I'm like finishing ringing up, but it's right at closing. And so they have to go and unlock the doors for me to let you out. Yeah. The police had found the door locked with the key still in the lock on the inside, which means oh. that the girls were probably locking themselves in with these two guys. Oh. Or else the killers could have cracked the back door open earlier that night when they used the bathroom or something. The police kind of latched on to the fact that the back door had been left cracked open. But I went I went to this yogurt shop. Oh, the of back, course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> What else was I going to do? I went to Austin for Thanksgiving. Obviously I'm going to go. And the back alley actually lines up. So there's like the street that runs along the back alley, the little road, but right at that road is a Creek that runs down and it's like wooded, lots of trees. It would be so easy to run right out that back, that back door, go down that Creek and you're gone. Like you're gone.
1: So I think, I mean, they just, yeah, if you have the athletic prowess to do that,
0: I don't even think you would need to be that athletic because it's like right there. And then you just like are hidden in the trees. You know, nobody can find you, especially if it's dark. So I think that they didn't crack the door open. I think it was those guys that got locked, locked in with them, killed them, and then left through that back door. And that's how the back door was found kind of cracked open.
1: Well, ever since you told me about Lulu I'm like, did one of these other girls do it? Like, now are we just convinced it's two dudes? Like, I just don't even trust you anymore.
0: <laughs> well, they're all dead, so yeah, okay. they're all dead. Mm-hmm.
1: But this is also why it seems
0: crazy to me that on a late night shift like this, you would have teenage girls
1: I was, closing yeah. down
0: a store by themselves.
1: I was just about to say, I wasn't allowed to even work a second shift like in high school, and that ended at 9 p.m. Right. Like, and I was with usually two other people one typically a male right that, that means anything but like i mean 11 p.m that's what time the store closes so if it was busy you could solve another hour of like side work and cleanup exactly. like you got a curfew sis <laughs> now to be fair this yogurt shop had been running
0: this way for years and this was the very first murder in one of the shops so
1: that was is their this defense. like austin austin or is this like round yeah. like well no, austin this? austin
0: yeah it's off uh-huh. anderson lane yeah mm-hmm. North Austin by North Cross Mall. Anyway, after locking the doors, according to their normal protocol, the girls would deposit the money from the day into a floor safe in the office and clean up. And when they were finished, they'd take the key out, lock the store again from the outside, put the key in an envelope, and slide it under the door. So that's how they would close (gasps) up because there wasn't like a manager with them that had a set of keys. Like slide the key under the door? Yes, know. yikes! That of course didn't happen. They never left the store. But on this night at eleven oh three, Eliza rang up the very last transaction of the night, which was a no sale transaction. And yeah. police would also discover five hundred and forty dollars missing from the store. Yeah, she had to
1: open the register. She had
0: to mm-hmm.
1: ring it. Yeah, yep. I was like, I know these fools did not pay for their froyo before they did all this.
0: I don't think they even ate anything. Police believe that someone entered the shop with the intention of committing a robbery, but there's also been theories that it was the work of a known serial killer or people doing it on that guy's behalf as some sort of initiation. Regardless of why, at some point after the shop closed, the four girls were forced to enter the back room of the shop and killed. The murderers then gathered paper plates, napkins, cups, and cardboard from the shop and and doused it all and the girls in lighter fluid and set it all on fire.
1: Yeah, yeah, we got that part. Okay, you don't have to remind
0: me. Sergeant Jones started working the case with his partner, Mike Huckabee. Jones really felt like they owed it to the victims to get it right. He seemed to look at this case as more like a mission than a job, and he would become very close with the families. He hung the shirt he was wearing the night of the murders up on the walls of the APD and he told the families, the next time that you see me wearing this shirt, you'll know I got the guy. Jones would never get the chance to wear that shirt, which is now (sighs) hanging in the back of his closet.
1: Oh, wait. I have a clarifying question just Mm -hmm. to to make sure I understand. Can you remind me who is in what family and the sisters? Like how many families are there, two sisters? Three. So there's Sarah and Jennifer Harbison
0: Eliza Thomas and Amy Ayers. Okay. Three families.
1: The 17-year-old older sister went and got the younger girls from the mall, brought them to Froya. Yep. Okay. These murders
0: shook the city of Austin. Austin is the capital of Texas, as we know. but Texas forever. (laughs) (laughs) But especially at this time, it still had more of a small town feel with less than half a million residents at the time. It was a very safe city. In fact, it was among the safest in the country of other cities of comparable size. In 1991, Austin's homicides totaled 52, which is about a quarter of Fort Worth's homicides. Uh, I looked up Houston that year. It was 600. So (laughs) Austin's 52. The
1: streets streets raised me. So (laughs) you're welcome.
0: The streets raised me. The Waffle House raised you.
1: (laughs) Yes, 100%. You already know that. And many
0: believe that Austin was just never the same after the yogurt shop murders. Billboards were put up on the highways with the girls' pictures posted with the headline, Who Killed These Girls? underneath. Thousands of tips started pouring in, and the suspect pool grew to an incredible size. All right. You got to listen to this. Reese Price, who was their manager at ICBY, she told police that she and Jennifer Harbison had received harassing phone calls at home and at work and that Reese's apartment had been burglarized in the creepiest way. What? Her valuables had all been left behind, but the burglar took the time to arrange her underwear
1: in a neat pile on her bed with a kitchen knife on top. I could do without the knife, but my underwear and bra drawer is... (laughs) stupid so if there's a good way to fold underwear <laughs> why I'm would anybody
0: suggest- care about folding their underwear because it gets I, all t- i throw it in the drawer in the end ugh, stresses me i'm trying to marie Kondo my underwear <laughs> um this kitchen knife really stuck out to her when she heard about the cuts in the girl's clothing yeah okay it gets worse she mm. also told police about the crawl space above the yogurt shop that connected the shops to each other in this strip center and that she and the other girls had heard noises up there. One night, she found shoe prints on a toilet seat in the men's room with a ceiling tile above it that had been moved out of place. I hate this woman.
1: Then why is she letting 17-year-olds close up the place? Good point. I would have fired all of the small children working at said (laughs) yogurt shop. How you could, like, oh, we have people in this crawl space. <laughs> are sneaking in and tap dancing on the toilets, but we're going to let Nancy Drew and Babysitters Club <laughs> close the place up. Oh my God, let Nancy Grace get a hold of this woman. I'm done. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh, That's the right. true crime here. Uh, I didn't even think about it that way because I was too
0: busy thinking about Footprints on a toilet seat from some creepy dude
1: crawling down from the ceiling. Yeah, that's he creepy. <laughs> so you don't let small children run the store then. Oh my god. Agreed.
0: There was also a known serial killer in the area, Kenneth McDuff. Now, the first time Why I do hear I know this, that name. Look, this guy is evil personified. And when I first heard about this, I was really confused about how they suspected a known serial killer because I was like, why isn't he in jail if they know he's a serial killer? Yeah, I was just
1: confused. Like when you say known serial killer, I assumed you meant he's in prison.
0: Right. So I was actually driving to Austin for Thanksgiving and I was listening to a true crime podcast, of course. And Was it ours? (laughs) It was not ours, though. I do listen to ours Mm -hmm. from time to time. An ad came on for this podcast, True Crime Reporter, and I wasn't really listening, but I had to stop and rewind when I heard the name Kenneth McDuff, because apparently the entire first season of True Crime Reporter is all about this McDuff guy. So I immediately put that on and I found out why he wasn't in prison. So listen to this. Okay, so he had killed three people in Austin. He'd been given the death penalty, but then back in the early 70s, the Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional. So his death sentence had been commuted to a life sentence in 1972. But then in 1989, they gave this guy parole. Why? Turns out tons of corruption on the Parole board. They had been given bribes
1: to let out all of these very violent offenders. I literally just watched an episode of White Collar about this—not murder, but bribes and letting sure. people off.
0: So he was out and about in 1991 when these murders occurred, and he actually managed to kill five people after he'd been paroled. That we know of, because some people say that number could be closer to a hundred. I think about our episode from last week, Marissa Alexander, who would have had no shot at parole, no shot at parole for 20 years. Yeah. Clearly not a danger to society, but you're
1: going to parole a serial killer after 17 years. And the no serial board, Did he confess? Was he like, it was 100% him? Yeah. Like,
0: known. 100% him. Yes. 100%. No wrongful conviction here. He did it. He's a disgusting, horrible person. He did it. Another really good lead the police had were these two Mexican nationals who'd confessed to the murders while what? they were in a Mexican prison, and they looked really good for it. They'd even signed statements that looked really good, but under closer inspection and investigation, they were ruled out. Turns Why out,
1: people fake confess. Oh well. Well,
0: actually, we will get into that in just a second. Hang on. Turns out these guys <laughs> fake confessed. <laughs> Because their investigation involved the use of a coke bottle filled with water and cayenne pepper, which was poured down their nose until they "quote unquote" confessed. So that they didn't seems do it. illegal and very peculiar, doesn't it? <laughs> that that did not happen in the United States, but I'm not saying it couldn't. Other tips included guys showing up to the police station using leaked information to try and convince the police that they had committed the crime. They would go into gruesome descriptions that were wildly inaccurate, but would often include a few very precise details of the crime. Sergeant Jones had gone to a lot of trouble to keep certain information from the media, but it seemed like there were leaks everywhere. This information was getting out all over the place and people were using it to confess to this crime. Like This happens all the time and yet we still can't seem to grasp the idea of a false confession. So let's talk of false confessions. I I found this information incredibly interesting. There are actually three types of false confessions. There are the voluntary ones, like the guys showing up at the police station just ready to confess. They want the attention, but almost always they end up retracting their statements when the police threaten a polygraph. (laughs) Then there's the type of false confession called coercive compliant. These usually occur after hours and hours of intense interrogation and what feels like just intolerable pressure from the interrogating officer. Most people who fall into this category all say the same thing. Like, I thought if I could just get out of that room and away from those guys that were pounding away at me, I could take a lie detector test
1: or give a DNA sample and prove that I didn't do it. People like the, um, oh, sorry. I was just, when you were saying that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the rape uh, Maria who she like basically confessed that she'd made the whole thing up because they were just like, or even think, yeah. Actually,
0: hers is probably more like the next type, which is the rarest type of false confessions called coerced internalized confessions. And this is the type where the suspect is so thoroughly persuaded of his guilt that he actually begins to hear and see himself in the act of committing an offense that he previously had no memory of. So that's kind like of they like they see Marie. themselves doing it. Yeah. The memories just come of them actually committing the crime, even though they had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and so it mean, makes sense. Yeah. That's kind of like Marie who was convinced while she was in that room with that detective that maybe I didn't go through this. Maybe I did make it all up. Hmm. One detective that proved to excel at this type of confession was named Hector Polanco, and he was a senior sergeant homicide detective for the Austin PD at the time of the murders. He had a 100% clearance rate. That's
1: impossible, sir.
0: Or he's just an incredible detective right? I mean, you must be amazing, like like a savant or something, considering the nationwide average is around 61%. Um, Maybe
1: he's clairvoyant.
0: <laughs> what is he, clairvoyant? <laughs> yeah. I'm very suspicious of any detective with a clearance rate well above average, because especially if you're at 100%, to me, that just means you don't care if you get the right guy as long as you get someone.
1: Yeah, I also just feel like then you're not like Austin PD, like the FBI or like someone's recruiting you if you're like that good, (laughs) you know, a top closer over here. Yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Polanco had a reputation for coercing confessions out of innocent suspects. And he was actually responsible for putting two men away for 14 years for a murder they hadn't committed until they were exonerated based on DNA evidence after the real perpetrator came forward. And even after the real perpetrator came forward, it took years To actually release, for them to actually release these two guys. One of those men was beaten so badly in prison, he now has extensive brain damage and the mentality of about a two year old. (gasps) Both of them received millions of dollars from the state, obviously, as they should, but that doesn't repair your brain or give you your 14 year life back. back. Yeah. Polanco truly believed that he'd been given mystical powers that enabled him to get a confession out of the guilty, and this was especially true if the suspect was Latino. He'd use everything from the Virgin Mary to their relatives' documentation status to get what he needed. Mm -hmm. They called him the boogeyman or El Diablo.
1: Oh, the devil.
0: (laughs) I really hope you were going to go with, like, the chupacabra or something. They did not call him the chupacabra, but um, I feel like we could. Go with that. Chupacabra. Mm-hmm. By,
1: <laughs> by early February. Now I'm just gonna yell out Spanish like <laughs> El <jefe>. La Mesa. <laughs> which my mom likes to refer to herself as El Jefe, which is a whole other thing we'll have to unpack sometime. But I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: By early February of 1992, about two months after the murders, Polanco had already come up with a credible confession from an inmate in jail named Sean Smith. He interrogated Smith alone in a room with no recording device for six hours and walked out with a signed statement. And everyone was thrilled. They were all hoping this nightmare of a case was about to be over. They... We're under a lot of pressure to solve this case. This was terrifying to all the residents of Austin, and they wanted it over as quickly as possible. But no such luck, because as they were about to start a polygraph test, Smith started to recant. They ran the test anyway, and it was filled with discrepancies, holes, and deception. But his story had so many details right that it did confirm to the homicide detectives that too much information was leaking out, and it would get really hard to tell the difference between a real confession and a false confession. Like, that's one of the reasons why police hold certain details about a crime scene back so that they know. they should.
1: Right. So that the bodies don't show up where someone was fishing. Hmm. Oh, Interesting.
0: Yes. So this tells me that Polanco could have just been feeding him information, feeding him these details. And he was just regurgitating it out because we don't know because he didn't record any of his interrogations. And then a month later, another guy confessed to the murders after spending some time with Polanco, the chupacabra in a room with no recording device. Like, how is anyone taking these confessions from this guy seriously? Uh, He just walks into a room. Right. Spends a little alone time in there. Walks out with a confession to the same crime over and over again. Like, obviously, they're not good confessions. Obviously, he's doing something wrong. Yeah. Like, who's your supervisor? Why
1: aren't they like – I've got a lot of beef with the bosses in this. Like, (laughs) why isn't your – boss saying hey you have to go in there with a the recording why isn't this yogurt shop lady being like hey you can't work here no more because you're like 16 you know right like we're all the adult where are all the adults well and i'm guessing that because he was a supervisor polanco he
0: was jones's supervisor i believe But and right, i think but in, someone over him And uh yeah there should be at least i mean the chief of police for sure but the chief of police is like all right we need to close this do what you got to do you know I'm about to come be everyone's boss.
1: I'm El Jefe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're You're soy
1: El Jefe. All right, El Jefe.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally, and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In!, EarnIn is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the EarnIn app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E A R N I N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under Podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under Podcast. Subject here available earnings, location, daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com/tos for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So, all right, let's back up a little bit. 8 days into the investigation, police heard of a 16-year-old named Maurice Pierce who had been picked up at North Cross Mall just blocks away from the crime scene carrying a 22 caliber handgun. When you say picked up, I don't think you mean, like, by his mom. Police picked him up. Oh, wait. Okay. Yeah, police had picked him up. During questioning, Pierce said that he'd lent the gun to his friend Forrest Wellborn, who was 15 at the time, and that Forrest had used it to commit the yogurt shop murders. Forrest denied any involvement but told investigators that he and Pierce and a pair of acquaintances, Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott, had taken a joyride to San Antonio in a stolen SUV not long after the crime, which put Springsteen and Scott on the police's radar for the first time.
1: I don't think like a 15-year-old can do something so brutal. I mean, I know that they can, but. That's just
0: well, and then if you think about the girls, I mean, these were very sweet girls, but they were FFA girls. Like they were not like they would have just laughed these guys out of the shop if they had they were puny yeah. little punky teenagers, you know? Yeah. I don't think well, they could you just have- said
1: they were FFA girls. Like double yeah. over here. Yeah. Do, do you know FFA girls? I do know FFA Okay. Girls. I mean me. Have too. you watched the calf scramble? They take down like a full on cow to yeah. its knees. No kidding. No kidding. (laughs) They are not. You're not going to walk all over these FFA girls, okay? It's not their first rodeo. No pun (laughs) intended. Not their first rodeo. The police
0: were unable to match the ballistics from Pierce's gun to the bullets from the crime scene, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been a match. I had to do a lot of research onto bullets for this but apparently (laughs) we'll get your facts straight before you put (laughs) it out there no kidding yeah if anybody has a correction for me (laughs) but according to my research 22 caliber bullets are smaller and more fragile than a larger caliber. And so if they hit a hard object, the bullets can be smashed or bent and it makes it nearly impossible to use for ballistic matching purposes because you're matching up grooves on the bullet to the gun, gun. and if the bullet is all smashed. You can't match those grooves and say with certainty that this is the gun. So they right. couldn't match the bullet to the gun, but that didn't mean that it wasn't the gun. However, after lengthy questioning, Sergeant Jones and his team dismissed Pierce as a suspect. They concluded that he was lying. And for Jones, a big part of why he was convinced was that Maurice Pierce was questioned by Polanco and never confessed. Polanco's got guys in there that didn't do it that are confessing. And Jones is like, you're going to tell me that this 17-year-old kid is going to go in there for hours with Polanco, and he did it, but he didn't confess? I don't think so.
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, I'll take that. All he said was
0: that Forrest might have committed the murders with his gun, but that he was not involved at all, which makes me think that Polanco went in there and told him that they matched the bullets to the gun, and they knew it was his gun that was involved. So Pierce is sitting there thinking... How could that be? Oh, I guess Forrest must have done it because he had the gun at the time. You know, that's how I think that went down. But that and just a total lack of evidence was enough for Sergeant Jones to cross this group of teenagers off his list. But fast forward three years and there have been no breaks in the case in three years. Sergeant Jones now has PTSD due to this case. His marriage Uh is in shambles due to this case. And he's actually taken off the case and given another assignment. The yogurt shop murders have gone completely cold at this point. But Jones says (sighs) they'd done absolutely everything that they could with the resources that they had. And I believe him. I mean, with limited manpower, he had managed to comb through thousands of leads, cross off hundreds of suspects. But at this point, they were effectively out of places to take it.
1: And it just, there's so much damage done to the crime scene. It's the early nineties. Like we don't have the type of, <laughs> we like I'm on the force. Right. They don't have the type of like, you know, technology resources even. Uh, right. I don't. Yeah. So let's
0: fast forward another year or two. And there's this detective named Paul Johnson. He picks up the file and takes the case on. And as like a part of a cold case task force. He begins reorganizing the information Jones had compiled, and he starts working those files for nearly two years. For whatever reason, that is still unclear to literally everyone, Maurice Pierce jumped out at him. At trial, Detective Johnson says it's because Maurice was caught with the same caliber gun, but there were many suspects in those files that mentioned a twenty-two.
1: Well, um, a twenty-two caliber is very common.
0: Right. Right. Nonetheless, he began to actively reinvestigate Pierce and his friends, Forrest Wellborn, Robert Springsteen, and Michael Scott. Defense attorneys will speculate that Detective Johnson went into this case under the assumption that Jones's team had messed up, that they'd had the bad guys all along, they were somewhere in their files, and they missed them. Instead of looking at it, Through, okay, what did we miss the first time around? Let's reinvestigate, let's look at new things. They came up with what they thought happened, and then they built their case around that theory. Hmm. Of the four boys, Pierce was the only one who had ever been in trouble with the law before. And the police were convinced that he was the ringleader of this whole thing. His trouble with the law involved things like joyrides, fights at school. (laughs) And trespassing, like nothing even close to what had happened at the yogurt shop, not even
1: like animal cruelty or something right. like that, or you like know? beating a girlfriend or hurting like a, right. Nothing I mean, like, like a violent. fight, at school. Well, fight like, at school, but yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to every adolescent boy. <laughs> sure.
0: Uh, in the original 1992 interview with Pierce, Pierce had told Polanco that Forrest probably used his gun to kill the girls. So the police wire Pierce up to try to go to Forrest to get a confession out of Forrest. Only Forrest has no idea what Pierce is talking about. Pierce started to cry on the tape, saying that he was scared that he was going to go down for a murder that he didn't commit. And Forrest said he was scared too. And then they just start arguing about who was more scared.
1: Well, of course, because his name is Forrest. So obviously he did not do it. (laughs) Like... Come on. Yes,
0: obvious for so many reasons. and But unfortunately, one night when he was a 16-year-old little punk kid, Pierce had decided to shove a loaded pistol in his jeans to strut around North Cross Mall like he was some kind of badass and then had implicated Forrest. And then Forrest brought up that joyride with Rob Springsteen and Mike Scott because if none of that would have happened, no one would have paid any attention to them at all. But six years and no leads later, that group of teenage boys was looking better and better to Detective Paul Johnson. So by 1997, these boys were between 21 and 23. None of them were really friends any longer, mostly due to Pierce falsely accusing Forrest of murdering <laughs> people. they will all- do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you ever accuse me of murder, we're done. <laughs> okay. Well, not after I try and drain you for $70,000 in Morocco first, so. (laughs) That is a joke from our Anna Delvey
0: episode in case (laughs) uh, people want to check it out. They all dropped out of school and only one even had a GED. Oh my gosh. Police called Pearson first. He made a statement that Forrest had borrowed his gun, and he'd wondered if he'd killed the girls at the yogurt shop, but said he was very nervous during that interrogation in 1991, and he was trying to say things that would get him out of the police interview. Then police went to Forrest, who said he didn't remember the night of the murders, but figures he was at the mall because he was there a lot, and probably with Pierce, because that's who he hung out with at the time. That's how memories work. Like, I say, okay, hey, Mogab, where were you two Wednesdays ago? And you would say, well, normally on a Wednesday, I am at work from this time to this time, and then I do this. You know, you're thinking about what you normally do if the day doesn't stand out to you. Anyways. Right. He denied any involvement, and he passed a polygraph. And this is why I say polygraph tests Mm -hmm. do not help you, because they still tried several times to indict Forrest. So do not take a polygraph test. Even if you pass, they'll still try to indict you. Right. Johnson even made a note at this time that Forrest was helpful, cooperative, and now doubts his involvement. But Johnson then made calls to Springsteen and Scott, neither of which gave him anything new or interesting. Later, Pierce would even agree to undergo hypnosis against a lawyer's advice, and nothing came out of that. So let me repeat that. The guy they suspect of being the ringleader of this agreed to put himself in a position where he could potentially have no control over the things he said. Right. Which screams guilt, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, nah. Nah. But on August 6th, 1999, Johnson delivered a four-hour PowerPoint presentation about their investigative plan to pursue Maurice Pierce. I don't understand. I don't understand either. And it started with the girlfriend Rob Springsteen had for three weeks in 1991.
1: Oh, Kelly boy. Hanna.
0: <laughs> her name was Kelly Hannah. During her interrogation, she said she knew Rob hung out in that area, and she thought it was odd that he hadn't seen something that night, like fire trucks. Detectives asked her if by seeing something, she really meant involved
1: in. <laughs> then the police <laughs> Done <started it>. something. <laughs> right. Also, like, this area, like, what is this area? Unless you're on that exact street, you wouldn't see. I mean, I guess, like, North Cross Mall, like, which is, like, kind of
0: right across the street from this strip center. But then the police start to hint that she might actually be a suspect in this, and she's feeling a lot of pressure from the police. They finally ask her out of the three boys, Rob, Mike, or Forrest, who would be most likely to, to talk to them about Maurice Pierce, and she says mike scott
1: of dunder mifflin <laughs>
0: that's
1: different, what i've been picturing ever since you said michael scott different mike scott different oh. mike scott on between <laughs> all the all the characters when you say a name even if it's not related like all of anna delvey i pictured lauren conrad until i google imaged her i'm picturing michael scott riding around in this car like <laughs> so bad On September 9th, 1999, Scott was questioned at the
0: police station for 12 hours, Hmm. and eventually he said he knew the identities of the killers. He told his wife during a phone call at the station that night that he knew more about the case than he thought he knew, which begs the question of how, in the span of a day, he could come to believe that he knew more about this incident than he had when he walked in. Yeah. They resumed the interview the next day, and this interrogation is intense. At one point, the detective brings a revolver into the room to, quote unquote, help Scott remember what he did through some role play. I don't think that's what happens. He then walks behind him while he's holding the gun and jabs him in the back of the head with what looks like the barrel of the gun. The cop said it was only his finger, but I'm not sure that actually makes it any better. It would be more than reasonable for Scott to assume that this cop is literally holding a gun to the back of his head. There are pictures of this interrogation. I will post it. Oh, is there cayenne pepper too in the eyeballs? Cayenne pepper was not involved here, but I feel like a gun to the back of the head trumps a cayenne pepper up the nose. I don't know.
1: That's fine.
0: And Scott finally says he shot one of the girls, that he had fired a gun once and that he had set the fire. A few days later, Scott was interviewed again, and this time he said he remembered seeing Pierce with one of the girls in a separate room in the yogurt shop. He said he thought he had gagged one of the girls with paper towels or napkins or a terry cloth. The girls were gagged with their own clothing. He also said the 22 came from Rob Springsteen. He couldn't remember much about the other weapon, but he thought it was a semi automatic 38. It was actually a 380, which is a much smaller caliber. At this point, the case was up to 50 confessions, including six written statements. The new detectives on the case were only worried about this one. Given after twenty hours of interrogation filled with inconsistencies and incorrect details from a guy who wasn't all that bright and had had to repeat the tenth grade before eventually dropping out of high school, solid solid, yeah, solid case they got here. Also, the only reason they even knew about him was because Forrest had told them they'd gone on a drive on a joy ride to San Antonio together that night. I mean. The police then pick up Rob Springsteen, who at this point was actually living in West
1: Virginia. And oh. after, <laughs> <laughs> major love to our WV listeners. It's ex- all I'm. Look, all I will say is that is exactly where I would have anticipated him being picked up
0: after a lengthy, intense interrogation, consisting with a lot of, I know you did it just tell us, just be a man and tell us kind of types of needling. He -hmm. confesses to sexually assaulting and killing one of the victims, Amy Ayers. He got some of the details right, like knowing the position of Amy's body and that she was shot by a 380 handgun. But these details were known to virtually anyone interested enough in the case to look into it. He'd known it for years they also questioned Pierce and Forrest, and Forrest said they tried to tell him what to say, but no matter how hard they tried, he would not say that he'd done it. And then the Austin Police Department announced they had charged four men with the murders of Jennifer, Eliza, Sarah, and Amy.
1: Oh, okay. Then what happened?
0: Now, now, a cats out of the bag, people. Well- they never could get a confession out of Maurice Pierce or Forrest Wellborn and the charges against them had to be dropped when a grand jury failed to indict them which is extremely rare. One article yeah. I read said it only happens 0.0068% of the time. Grand it's a juries lot than 100%. Than always 100%. Right. Grand juries always indict. They always always indict except for 0.0068% of the time. <laughs> They actually tried twice to indict Forrest, and they couldn't do it. You basically have to have no evidence to not get an indictment. And the only thing they had were the taped confessions of Rob Springsteen and Mike Scott, who did not implicate Pierce or Forrest in their confessions.
1: So were they still arrested, though?
0: They were arrested and charged, but the charges were dropped because the grand jury wouldn't indict them.
1: And then they're, yeah, they're like, oh, okay.
0: But they did indict Rob Springsteen and Mike Scott. And again, because they confessed. But again, they had 50 other confessions from other people that all included so many details of the crime that police were sure there was a leak in the department. So why these confessions were the ones to be taken seriously with no physical or circumstantial evidence to back it
1: up I'm not
0: sure. Cause they want to
1: wrap it up with a little bow and there's four girls and there's four guys. And mm-hmm. then that's like, Oh, that makes sense. That was yeah. doable. That was whatever. Like, right. Which like eight people in this tiny ass yogurt shop. <laughs> someone's going to see something like, I just, yeah, I don't know. Also like, what about all the stuff uh, that the, her name is Reese. Right. So like the people in the cross space, like, they really think these high school kids at the time were scoping this place out and dropping down, standing on toilets? Yeah,
0: I don't think the police used her state, like took her statements very seriously. I don't think they were looking for anybody up in the crawl space of this shop.
1: <laughs>
0: as far as I know, they nothing ever came of that. The police were convinced that Pierce was the ringleader of this crime, I guess because he was the one that owned the gun but they couldn't get him on anything. The families were really upset that such a cold blooded killer was out on the streets. And I don't blame them at all. Yeah. When the police, they think he did it. They do. And when the police are telling you they're sure these guys did it, why wouldn't you believe them? You know, it's been almost, almost a decade of wanting nothing more than to make whoever did this pay.
1: But that means catching the right person. They just want closure at this point. I mean, what they can get, you know, that sounds cold, but you know what I mean?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can get. Rob and Mike were tried separately and during their trials, both confession tapes were played. The jury watched as Mike Scott implicated Rob during Rob's trial and then how Rob implicated Mike during Mike's trial. But neither were called as witnesses at the other's trial, meaning that the defense couldn't cross-examine them. Their confessions were used against each other, but they weren't allowed to confront each other in court. And so they were both found guilty, based almost solely on those confessions and a few witness statements that couldn't actually identify Mike or Rob as the person they saw in the yogurt shop, as well as some oh, other yeah, witness- I forgot sta- about that. Yeah. I saw them. Yeah as well as some other witness testimony of friends of the boys that said they'd told them that they'd done it. Rob was given a death sentence, later commuted to a life sentence, but Mike's jury could not agree on the death penalty, and so he received life in prison. However, in the U.S., we have this little thing called the Constitution. And one of the rights granted to us by the Constitution is the right to confront our accusers, And they were not granted this right because they were not allowed to confront each other in court. Yeah. Because of that, in June 2009, they were released while pending their next trial, just released on their own recognizance, no bail. Rob had been on death row for nearly 10 years at that point. It was really tough watching the family members discuss this they're convinced that these guys did this and Eliza's mother was really angry that they were getting out of prison because their rights were violated when their girls were murdered and yeah. i just couldn't imagine her pain it was really sad but these guys didn't do it and the yeah, reason I mean, that we know of yeah The reason we have these rights is to make sure that everyone gets a fair trial so that innocent people are not put in prison. Like justice for these girls means getting their murderer beyond a reasonable Mm -hmm. doubt. And the doubts of the guilt of these men would just continue to pile up. There was no physical evidence against any of the four. No fingerprints, no blood, no DNA, no hair. And you want to hear something really shady? Of course. Michael Scott's confession doesn't match the original arson investigators' report about how the fire was started. The original report said the fire started on the shelf on the back wall, but Mike's confession said they had put all this stuff on top of Hopkins. the girls, yeah. poured lighter fluid on them, and lit them on fire. So a new report was filed, and the new report matched his confession. Exactly, and How then they file a new report they had a new guy come in to examine it, but then the original arson investigator changed his conclusion as well,
1: matching the confession mm. yeah, so again, just like corroborate like just gathering all this evidence, changing stuff to match their their theory, that, yeah, yeah.
0: Rob says he can't explain why he confessed after hours and hours of denying his involvement. He says there are just psychological aspects to it that he can't understand. And then there are a lot of details that Michael Scott got wrong. For example, the killers did not enter the office, but Scott claims they did. They know the killers didn't enter the office because they found the door locked. They had to go find a key to unlock the door.
1: Well, couldn't they have entered and then locked it back? But, like, why? They didn't do anything in
0: the office. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like that would be really unlikely, that they would lock it back when they're going to set it on fire and they lock the door behind them. I guess it's possible, but he didn't say they went and found a key and unlocked it and then, you know what I mean, in his
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't have the brain of a killer, okay? I'm doing the best (laughs) I can. Also,
0: Scott used the word accelerant in his confession. These are high school dropouts, okay? And he says... In his confession, I read the whole thing. I heard a whooshing sound as the accelerant caught fire. Up until then, through his entire confession, he had called it lighter fluid. He'd said lighter fluid about 10 times. You're going to tell me this guy that had to repeat the 10th grade and didn't use a single other multi-syllable word in that confession is
1: suddenly going to use the word accelerant? No, because I was about to ask you what that word (laughs) have a college degree and I also have to be like, I'm going to ask, but I have a feeling she's going to tell me now she's my context exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. An accelerant is something that you would use to start a fire, like lighter fluid or
0: gasoline or something to make the fire go whoosh. Yeah, I figured that out. Okay. Well, it's also a cop word. The reason you haven't heard it a is because word. we don't say it. Like that's a word that cops use or a word that people who listen to a lot of true crime podcasts use. But- <laughs> Michael like Scott you. did not fall into either of those categories. So it just doesn't sound like his words. It sounds like he's repeating something he'd heard instead of recalling the actual memory. Yes.
1: Was this a written statement or recorded? It
0: was a written statement. Ah. He wrote it. I wonder if he had spell to ask. it right. Yeah. Huh. He did.
1: Cuz I don't know that I could do that right now.
0: Yeah. Rob had this lawyer Okay, I'm just gonna tell you his name. It was
1: Joe Jim Sawyer. <laughs> you waited till I took a drink of water for that. <laughs> All right. All right, so- tell me about Jimmy
0: Bob. <laughs> Joe Jim. Whatever. So, Joe Jim Sawyer, he asked the same question that I've been asking What differentiates Rob's confession and Mike's from the 50 other confessions they have? Is it their belief that he's the right guy? Like when you look at that, I think no, it's that he was associated with there was four. I feel like truly that is what it is that there was the four and four. Okay, well, that's gonna get even weirder because DNA. So, look, the DA, her name is Rosemary Lemberg. She wants to find justice, but unfortunately. She feels the only justice in this case would be convicting Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen again. She knew that she would need more than just those taped confessions to get another conviction from them, so she ordered new DNA testing, since a lot had happened in the DNA testing world since 1999. This included swabs that contained fluids from the girl that Springsteen confessed to raping this new technology searched for male DNA only and is a really accurate test for mixtures of male and female DNA. But the test did not go the DA's way. The DNA did not match a single one of the four boys suspected or convicted of this crime. And instead of admitting they were wrong and starting to look in new directions, the prosecution doubles down and said, There just must have been a fifth guy with them.
1: That's their like Mm -hmm.
0: response. Right. There were five guys. No one has ever mentioned this fifth guy in all the 20 plus hours of interrogation. And how unfortunate that it's only this fifth guy's DNA that was found instead of the four other guys they were trying to railroad into this.
1: I just like don't understand how they think like, okay, so we didn't have any of this information. But there was just this fifth person hanging out that none of them, like if I'm getting in trouble, you're accusing me of murder. I'm taking every fool down with me. No that kidding. Was there. Like you're no just kidding. not going to bring him up.
0: And it also contradicts Rob's confession that he raped the girl because it was another man's DNA found inside right. of her. So that shows that at least part of his confession was false. In. Texas, for a wrongful conviction, you are eligible for $80,000 for every year you spend in prison, which Ooh. I think is great. States that do not pay for wrongful convictions, to me, that's an accountability measure. You know, that's an incentive for the prosecution to not just throw people in prison. It doesn't always work that way, don't get me wrong. But when you do that, you should have to pay. It's at least some. God accountability. And there are a lot of states that don't pay anything. They can keep put you behind bars for 30 years with a,
1: Hey, sorry, pal. When they let you out. Um, $80,000. Is that for anything? Cause I mean that one, one year, man, I'd lose about 20 pounds in student loans. <laughs> what, what is the, uh, like, is it for anything if you're in prison for anything? Yeah. For every year you spend in prison, no matter what wrongfully what. convicted.
0: Yeah, if you can prove
1: actual innocence,
0: if you can prove that it wasn't you, you have to be exonerated. But the police- pinch me on the
1: inside. (laughs) How about that?
0: (laughs) But the police refuse to declare Rob or Mike innocent despite DNA proving that Rob didn't do what he said he did in his confession, which is the only evidence against him is his confession. And they can actually recharge him at any time if they find that they have enough evidence, which they won't Mm -hmm. because he didn't do it. And they won't find who actually did do it either because they haven't looked past these four boys since Detective Paul Johnson zeroed in on them in 1998.
1: Right.
0: So now both Rob and Mike are free, but with this cloud over their head, knowing any day they could be brought back to stand trial, Rob says he wishes they would just do it now so he could clear his name and be declared innocent. But the DA will not risk a trial until they find out who this fifth person is. Now – in 2017, there was actually an advance in this case. The DNA profile they had, they ran it through this other system and they got a hit. Hmm. But it doesn't help it doesn't match an exact individual. It's kind of, it, it reminded me a lot of the DNA they had in the rape case that we did
1: mm-hmm. where There's like a, down to a family.
0: It matched to it, yes, to males in the same familial line. However, apparently the FBI is being super gatekeepy about it and they won't tell them what the match is. It's a really complicated issue involving like privacy concerns because it will match any males with the same familial line. But, you know, in that case, in the unbelievable story of rape case, it helps narrow it down to two guys. The FBI says in this case, it could be thousands and look Mm. This would not be okay if the police were just going to pick a name off that list and use that to arrest them. But if they used it correctly to try and narrow down this field of suspects, it could really, really help find the people that committed this crime. But it is complicated. So in February, they submitted a request to the FBI to turn over the information, but I don't think they have. I'm like, okay, somebody knows. So can the guys just like... Pass along a list and the guy just crosses names off that don't match (laughs) it. Yeah. like, But there are a few alternative theories floating out there. To me, the one that I think that I read about that makes the most sense is this one involving the serial killer Kenneth McDuff. I'm I'm not sure he committed the actual crime, but he had accomplices that helped him with a lot of the murders that he committed. And he seemed like he had this like groupy thing kind of going on, almost Manson-esque. And I think it's possible that a couple of those guys were responsible for yogurt shop. Probably the guys sitting in that shop looking suspicious right before closing time, maybe trying to get in good with McDuff, or maybe as some sort of initiation, or maybe to impress him. Like this crime was so heinous, so overboard. I just think there has to be something more to the story than a robbery that got out of hand.
1: And I agree. and I also think that's why it's not the like young high school kids. Not that again that like, you know, young people can't do those terrible things, but like I don't
0: but know, you're going to do that terrible thing and then Go 10 years and not do a single
1: other thing. Nothing. Yeah. I, I don't
0: know. Yeah. I don't know. And not
1: like that's four. There were four women. It's not like you get halfway through and you you freak out and feel this remorse. I mean, you were you were committing this act for very, murder for a very long time. Right. Like it's not like a quick like, oh, I just shot someone and ran out and – like, no, you're thinking then, about you're what you're doing. Them.
0: You're making them strip. Right. Or like, raping them. I know. I know. Don't tell me all the details again. So I'm I'm just not really sure why the DA and the prosecution are doubling down so hard on them, on these boys. To me, it just makes them look inflexible and ridiculous. Like, they don't really care who actually
1: did it. Just that I mean, they the, say yeah. they were right. It, when the fifth, when it was like, oh, like, Five Guys Burgers and Fries, dude. That to me is like, you just aren't even trying to like really, you just want to be done with this because you want to say like, there was justice served. We want these families to feel better. But like, you're not doing due diligence. You're not doing your a, a good job right? that. Like that's, I, I have no experience and I know that that's dumb. Right. And I, yeah, I just, I'm like, okay, you had-
0: Six signed statements, fifty other s- confessions, like, right, why is it these ones that are the only ones that are true? Like what is it that makes you think these guys did it? Are you holding something back that we don't know about, some other evidence that points to them? Because at trial, there wasn't any. And so hopefully one day we will know who killed Sarah Harbison, Jennifer Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers. They would all be in their 40s now, probably with families of their own. And whoever is responsible for stealing those futures has never been caught. And that is the story of the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. Mm. I actually went by the yogurt shop when I was in Austin (sighs) over Thanksgiving because how else
1: do you want to spend a family holiday?
0: Right. Exactly. Um, It's a beauty bar now. And in the parking lot right across from it is a bronze plaque like dedicated to the girls. Mm. And apparently every day, I don't know if they still do this, but every day the women at the beauty bar would burn incense for the girls and place it on the plaque. And when I went, there were little things that had been left for them. And the women said in the book I read that they do it because they hope if they remember the girls that when they die, someone will remember them, which I thought was Aww. really sweet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The organization that I wanted to highlight for this episode is probably going to be an organization that I highlight for a lot of episodes because I really believe in it. And that is the Innocence Project. Mm. And the Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. And to date, they have exonerated 375 individuals who spent an average of 14 years in prison, 21 of them we're on death row. So you can find out how you can support the Innocence Project at InnocenceProject.org.
1: They do amazing work. Yeah. I've, um, I know a little bit about them because I think um, like a lot of people during this time have been doing some kind of work to, to educate themselves, learn a little bit more about people of color in our society and how things are affecting them at you know a totally different way than it does if you're a white Caucasian person. And I've seen the numbers just for people of color that are wrongfully convicted or imprisoned. Um, and I know that they do a lot of work around that. That's kind of how I heard about them first. I think actually, maybe it was a Ted talk, but yeah, that's a really awesome organization.
0: Yes. And thank you so much for listening and thank you to everyone who has given us a five-star rating or review. If you get a second, please consider going onto Apple podcasts or we're now available on audible and you can rate us there as well and make sure to subscribe. So you'll know exactly when our next episode drops, When I'll tell MoGab all about a
1: crazy Texas cheerleading mom. Oh, I am. Let's do it now. I'm so (laughs) excited. Is it my mom? No. Were you a cheerleader? In eighth grade.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. You'll be able to bring so much to the table. If you would like to find more of us or see any of the pictures that we post, we're having a party over there on Instagram. If you want to check us out at Creepers Pod, you can also find us on Facebook at Creepers Pod and Twitter, or you can email us. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. If you have any theories of this case, send us an email at CreepersPod at gmail.com. It's um, a potty. Get it's it. a It's a
1: potty. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We're done here. Yeah. Bye, peeps
0: and peeps. a couple that went in at about a quarter to 11 said they saw two su- 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 said they saw two su- su- p- sus- <laughs> what the hell <laughs> 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 intro okay. oh we're gonna do that again